real life superpowers. Really, we can talk about marketing being important, but is it really? No, we're just taking money from one company's bank account and putting it in another company's bank account. We're not curing cancer here, okay? Yeah, Uber disrupt this or that is just another way to call a freaking taxi, okay? So <laughs> let's not kid ourselves about the importance of disruptive businesses or iPhones or Uber or anything else. And so ultimately, that's not where you're going to get your meaning from changing the world in that way of making things slightly more efficient so we can all run faster on the gerbil wheel. Hey all, today we speak with Tim Ash. Among many accomplishments, he's a best-selling author and international keynote speaker on evolutionary psychology and digital marketing. He's considered one of the founding fathers of the discipline of website conversion rate optimization. He's worked with companies like Google, American Express, Nestle, and Verizon, to name a few. He's been ranked a top 10 online marketing expert by Forbes magazine and top 15 online marketing influencer to watch by Entrepreneur magazine. His book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, Demystifying How We Think and Why We Act, has been endorsed by renowned psychologist Dr. Robert Caldini. But after all of his great achievements, his conclusion is the brutal honesty that the journey will end, and the journey is just that, a journey. It's fascinating to hear a person so released from cultural norms and evaluations on a quest to be a professional, well, human being. This episode is very different. You'll hear for yourself. Real Life Superpowers Superpowers. Tim, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you, though. What are you up to these days? Oh, well, I'm trying to get back to more public speaking, uh, which obviously, if you're an international keynote speaker, March 2020 was not a good month. I know we all suffered, but uh, flying all over the world and uh, performing in crowds of uh, thousands of strangers, not exactly the best uh, <laughs> eggs to put I guess the basket to put the eggs into. So right now that's all coming back, thankfully, but it's been a, an interesting couple of years to say the least. Okay. So now I have to dive right in and ask you, that sounds like a sort of crisis or at least somewhere near that because you're focusing on public speaking and suddenly COVID happens. How does that feel like? How did you navigate that? Wow. It was on the heels of me actually selling my share of my digital marketing agency, SiteTuner. So uh, I said, I'm going to had this kind of life reset after my mom died. And I decided that I'm going to just focus on things that give me joy, you know, my highest and best use in the world and things I can get paid for. So it was a very deliberate reset. I mean, this uh, the Japanese call this concept ikigai. And um, I was trying to find my kind of best contribution of the world. But I didn't realize that you know, flying around uh, business class, going to beautiful cities would, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, the worldwide pandemic. So the universe always has a way of slapping you in the head. Um, so I had to um, scramble and uh, refocus on my solo consulting. I do the advisory for senior executives in, in companies kind of as a shadow CMO. So I switched mostly to that. I used the time to write my latest book, which probably would have not 
the seeing the light of day for another year if I didn't have that focused time. I also did a LinkedIn learning class on neuromarketing and, and published that. So I guess I just uh, kept busy and had a sort of faith that things would turn out okay. And, and it's gone from being financially the worst year of my life to this year, the best year of my life. So you never know. What's your epiphany? Like, do you have any, any conclusion going out of that? Like things that you, you know, change? Yeah, well, I think it would probably be that um, planning only gets you so far. Uh, so I think uh, it was Bismarck or von Clausewitz or one of these uh, you know, German military types back in the day who says no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. I think that's true of all of life. You know, there's like, we can plan all we want and we can have our, okay, if I only do three social media posts a day and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's all bullshit. At some point you have to throw it up to uh, a larger sense of faith and, and, um, and operate from that. So um, I guess that's, that's my big takeaway is, is that planning and hustling and that whole hustle culture and pivoting and, you know, just uh, cheat sheets and uh, get my hacks and let's just work harder. That's to me, that's uh, all in the rear view mirror. So what isn't, what, what should you do? Uh, well, I think it comes from a, a higher sense of purpose. I'm personally not a religious person, but I think that a connection with the universe or spirit or God or whatever you want to call it, I think that Without that, we essentially abdicate our sovereignty, our choice, uh, our, uh, the, the fact that anything we do matters in the world. And so um, we tend to focus on workaholism or hedonism or um, any number of things because there's a power vacuum at the purpose level, at the mission level. Uh, so I, I've revisited my own purpose several times in my life and uh, as part of my work and an initiation weekend I had through this um, um, international organization called the Mankind Project. I recently kind of recommitted to uh, a new purpose and, and that's where I operate from. What's that purpose? <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to give it to you as a two-parter because One, and I also have a, have a, a spirit animal associated with each one. One is my mission or my purpose, and the other is my shadow mission or things that in Jungian terms that uh, hijack me and that my subconscious, when it runs the show, it does the, the other thing. So my mission of, the, of my spirit animal, which is Peaceful Lion, is I co-create a world of peace, safety, and love through joyous expression and service. So a lot of my, uh, the things I do, I basically say, hey, that's my North Star. Is, am I on mission or am I off? Uh, or in the words of Mark Manson, who wrote the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, he says, um, you know, basically, the, your answer should be hell yes or no. And so I'm saying no a lot more unless it's a hell yes for me and I'm on mission. All right. So that's my positive mission. My shadow mission, which is carried out by my Uh, shadow spirit animal, which is the raging bear, is the following. I create a world of disconnection, loneliness, and pain by chasing distractions, acting like a victim, and indulging in self-righteous anger. How do you become aware of those? I think part of it is you have to experience pain. We all do to some degree in our life. And I think some of us come into this the hard way. Some people have a lot more traumatic lives than I do. I mean, there are children being bombed in the Ukraine right now by, by Putin's invaders and things like that. That's, 
that'll teach you a few things. Uh, they'll be carried in your body the rest of your life. You know, I'm not advocating that anyone go through intentional suffering like that, but certainly some of us come to it earlier in life. I think for most people, it's something that just happens in midlife. There's essentially two parts as I see it. You know, the, the first part of the life when you haven't reached the apogee yet and all your achievements, you're striving, you're learning, you're curious. And all of that is to say that you're doing stuff. And uh, usually what consensus reality or the culture around you says is, is valuable. Um, and then the second half of life is taking that ego structure that you've created, all those things you thought mattered, and undoing that in preparation for, for death and returning to the mystery. Uh, so I think a part of it is just a life stage thing. Here I am in my 50s, and uh, it's, it seems more important to me right now. The thing is, as an entrepreneur, like the fear factor of it, like I wouldn't define it as subconscious. I'm not, I don't know, but like it's, it's kind of like your, your fears, isn't it? Yeah, but what is the where where do the fears come from? Usually, it's a it's a formative story you tell yourself based on a combination of your genes, your uh, early childhood experiences, your holding environment, if you want to call that. If your unique talents in the world are appreciated and reflected back to you, so yeah, it's fear. But uh, most of the time, it's very unconscious fear, and you just say, "Hey, if I just do more stuff," for example, I was a workaholic for a long time. My family relationship suffered, my relationship with my kids, uh, my physical well-being, all of these things. So, yeah, it's driven by fear and the subconscious, though. Can you say, like, the corona actually you took advantage of, like, the, uh, the experience of actually, like, stopping the motion? And, like, because that's sort of like a pivot. Yeah, well, by the way, and I hate the word pivot in hustle culture. If you haven't figured that out yet, I think that... Uh, you know, pivot's just a fancy way of saying, I don't know where I'm going, so I'm going to try something else. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Fair it's enough. somehow like this, uh, you know, like all this, you know, growth hacking. And uh, I mean, I just, seriously, I view that stuff as as a cancer on the planet at this point, you know, just like unlimited growth. Great. You know, let's pivot and uh, dominate and disrupt and all that stuff. I just, I'm not buying into it anymore at all. Um, so, but I do think that moments of stillness are really critical. So I, there, I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's called uh, King, Magician, Lover, and Warrior. Uh, or I'm not sure in that order, but it's about Jungian archetypes and kind of what constitutes the mature masculine. So I kind of look at the world as, as um, through the prism of that. Um, and there's another archetype that was actually added by, by my good friend and uh, David Gruder called the steward. I'll talk about these just super briefly. Um, so... If, if you draw your typical kind of cross axis, right, you have your vertical axis and your horizontal one. So at the, the top of the vertical one, let's put lover. That's, that's energy about recognizing the beauty of the world, avoiding pain, all of that, being in the moment sensation stuff. And I don't mean sexual lover necessarily, just appreciation of that energy more broadly. At the other extreme and intention with it is the warrior. Now, the warrior is about getting shit done. It's about mission. It's about service uh, in support of uh, what needs to happen um, and discipline, all of those kinds of things. Okay. And these are in a kind of opposition with each other. So too much being, you're not doing enough doing in the world. That's a problem. Too much doing and uh, you're not being or emotionally connected to the world. Um, and, and so on that axis, I would say I was doing too much doing. I was in warrior mode and I suppressed my emotions and I showed up in my family and uh, with 
without that sensitivity to the moment. Um, and the same thing with even my work relationships. I was kind of like the taskmaster, the driver, the the bully. I mean, that's the unhealthy shadow side of it, right? That's like get things done at any cost. I don't care who suffers. That's that's the warrior mo mode. Um, and on the other hand, too much lover is bad too. Ultimately, that leads to addiction. I mean, you know, you'll just die in the opium den because you forgot to eat. You know, that's not good either. <laughs> being too present in the moment. Yeah, yeah. So I was definitely overemphasizing the lover. I want to challenge what you just said because, you know, as sure. somebody who has um, practiced martial arts for a few years, I would yeah. say that the warrior has to be in the being or else they can't be a warrior. Like if you're in what's going to happen or in what happened and you're not in the moment fully, then you're, you're not going to be able to actually fight or do. Uh, for that metaphor. So I'm wondering why the assumption is that it's either or. Ah, well, no, I know it's not either or. I'm describing the two extremes of that axis. All being and all doing, I'm saying, are bad. In the middle, there's a fusion. I can come back and talk about that. By the way, I, I, I echo what you said. Um, you know, there's, um, I studied uh, Western fencing. I was a saber fencer in college, a pretty good one. And I also studied Tai Chi Chuan as a martial art. So uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And it's like, it's being completely present in the moment that allows you to bring about effective action. But actually, if you study martial arts, you only get to that at the highest levels. You know, you show up at a karate class, they teach you to, you know, break boards and, and punch and stuff. Um, I had a friend who ran a, a karate dojo at, at UC San Diego, which I attended as my university. And they, um, the, he said that the tests for the beyond black belt, beyond first degree black belt, weren't even physical tests. I mean, somebody would come up in the street to you and start fucking with you and they'd see how you respond to that situation. You know, so yeah, being present and appropriate proportional flowing action is is absolutely the consummate attainment of martial arts yeah but by the way in ninjutsu uh in one of the tests beyond the black belt you're actually supposed to sit in the dojo with your eyes closed and somebody is supposed to stand behind you with a sword and you get it like i think three chances for them to come and try to you know hit you in the head and you're supposed to roll over or move at, like you're just to sense it through, through the being uh, and that's yeah. how you get you know the ranking that's actually the same way yoda did it with luke skywalker oh, yeah <laughs> well that, that was all just copied from japanese martial arts so that's no surprise right um so let me talk briefly if i may about the other axis is yes, that okay please. so the vertical axis is being versus doing lover versus warrior grossly speaking on, on the horizontal axis on the left, um, there's the magician, transformation, alchemy, um, secret knowledge. You go down into the mystery and bring back something useful for your for your tribe or your society. That's the shaman, if you will. And, and, uh, and that's all about change, right? So counterpoised with that change is order. And that's the archetype of the steward that uh, my friend David Gruder talks a lot about that's underappreciated in our society. And, and the steward is about tradition, about process, about discrimination, standards, right? Orthodoxy, keeping things the way they are, purity. Like if you do a karate kata, again, to use a martial arts example, you don't just get to make it up as you go along. Actually, unless you're a black belt and You've internalized it, then you can change it or add to it, right? But the point is that there's got to be somebody saying, this is the way we've done it. This is the right way. 
And again, all of both of those dimensions have a tension in them. Too much change, you have chaos and nothing ever gets operationalized and everybody's pivoting and hustling and doing that in the, in the entrepreneurial world. Too much steward and too much stasis and order and you have rigidity and uh, zealotness and bureaucracy and things not ever getting done or changing. So both of those are in opposition. The part that's missing in that whole picture is what you talked about as a martial artist. In the center of that cross is the sovereign. It's the queen or the king energy, it's purpose. So these four players, if you will, these four energies are there to be brought out in the appropriate moment in service of mission and higher purpose and connection to source, whatever, again, that means to you. So unless you have that, that queen or king energy in the center, holding the center, if, some, if you abdicate that, or if there's a vacuum, one of these other archetypes is gonna step in and try to compensate. So to take this back to myself personally, that meant I was operating in steward and warrior mode all the time. And it was completely unbalanced because my king had abdicated. There was no purpose. And that's why I allowed a couple of decades of my life to get sucked into being a workaholic and trying to build an interactive marketing agency. Now we accomplished a lot, quote unquote, accomplished, but, but uh, that was due to this lack of mission and purpose. I really like the analogies, but on the, on the, uh, like the steward that you're talking about, you said, you said like that it's unappreciated. Do, do you think there's like a lack of steward as, as a, as a skill set in like this new kind of, you know, high tech, whatever changes and uh, structure, like there's, there's used to be a lot of stewards and, and today, like there's, there's a lack of stewardism. Exactly. So, you know, this goes back to Alvin Toffer in the 1970s, writing a book called, um, sorry, um, well, he wrote several books, but Future Shock was the one that, that he was first known for. And so he was saying the pace of change is accelerating. So uh, change is changing faster. And, and we're living in that maelstrom, that hurricane right now. And so everything is getting swept away. The center is not holding. So I think if anything, uh, healthy stewardship is really, really important in our society, in the business world, in everywhere, really. Uh, it comes out as unhealthy because of the rapid change of pace and the chaos that that causes. People cling to you know, really sick things. And we see this in the political realm, like, you know, we just need guns and God, you know, and then we're all good, you know, so there's also unhealthy stewardship, there's a shadow side to, to that coming out the wrong way. Uh, but the intention of it and the need for it is definitely, if it's healthy, uh, required for, uh, to create appropriate responses. So what do we keep? What do we throw away? Um, what what uh, constitutes quality? I mean, all this stuff about like minimum viable product, you know, I'm sure you've heard that phrase once or twice, you know, it's just like, let's make some crap and throw it against the wall. There's no standard that a user or a customer gets to experience. There's nobody saying, yeah, but it should do something useful. And, and we care about that. Right. Why, why is that the assumption? Because, you know, the, the MVP approach is supposed to be based on, you know, identifying a need and then testing it out and seeing if indeed it's meeting in, you know an audience yeah but the mentality okay again let's scrum and pivot and everybody's got to be on the slack channel i don't think any productive work any reflective uh, assessment of quality can even happen when you're running i mean I, when i was on the fencing team we used to do this physical exercise which is like 
you know, we'd run in place and be told to like feel our emotions. It's impossible due to the activity. That's again, if you're a warrior, you can't be lover, right? And in the same way, if, if you're looking for change and innovation and disruption and you never operationalize anything of any consequence, that, that's its own kind of blindness. That's, that's, you know, just like we're always in magician land and the people that understand the magician are the people that have the latest technology and they're always the youngest people and fuck these, you know, gray haired 40 year olds that are trying to manage me, right? That's its own kind of sickness. That, that's amazing. Like in the, on the sportsmanship, I keep see, seeing that. If you see the outcome of a sport, it's like someone who is, a, you know, was in sport challenges or uh, uh, sport oriented, then it sort of has that equation. If you think about it, if someone has an athlete, it's sort of like that's exactly like what you're talking about. He has a little bit. Yeah, has to have the exact balance. Right, right. Should 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 I should I do what I need to do that um, like get rest? proper yeah. sleep. Okay. But yeah, I also need to go get up the next day and go to the gym. That's my warrior. Okay. And then I need to just take some days off and do nothing that that's my lover. Right. Or and I need to figure it. out a, a new training technique or, you know, I, I'll, maybe I'll use biofeedback to improve my tennis game. Okay. That's the magician. Right. So, and, but all of that still needs to be under the steward, or sorry, stewardships the perhaps the wrong word, the sovereignty of the queen or the king, what is that larger purpose in attaining that? There's a lot of people that just burn out in the pro sports world because they, they're not tied to larger mission. They're just being driven by these demons of higher performance. But it may be easier because there's like a few rules, you know, just to, to go by, like there's the tennis rules. There's the X amount of competition. You know, it's easier than the business world where it's like open, open, you know, completely open-ended, right. You could work 80 hours a day or you could be right. like, like Tim Ferriss and do the four hour work week. I mean, you know, or there's also the, the 4 a.m. club, you know, people get up super early to that. I mean, which is ridiculous if you're not getting seven to nine hours of sleep, by the way, I'm fine with the 4 a.m. club if you go to bed by eight, you know. But anyway, I wrote about that in my latest book, but um, sleep is super critical for anything. It's daily life support. So how can people find that center and even know who their queen and king are? Well, put, put some thought into it. Basically, I think that requires those quiet moments. Uh, you know, if you, if you sit with the pain, uh, again, if you look at my shadow mission, I, I create a world of disconnection, loneliness, and pain by chasing distractions, acting like a victim, and indulging in self-righteous action. Now, that's my particular flavor of it, but you think about, and it's probably true of most people, how much of your time are you chasing distractions, acting like a victim, indulging in self-righteous anger, getting triggered by others without looking deeper into the causes of that? How much of your life is run unconsciously by your shadows, I guess, is a good way to ask it. So there's got to be some introspection in there somewhere between the event and the outcome, you can insert a conscious reaction. That's what sovereignty is. That's what choice is to me. Were you always fascinated with introspection and human nature? No, because my personality type is very action oriented. So I've had to get smacked in the face with a shovel to take a look at that stuff. So then your keynotes to a certain point where they're on completely different aspects or were you sort of being an observer and speaking about you know the 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 chemistry of the brain and other aspects without fully speaking from within 
Uh, well, I, my keynotes are about evolutionary psychology and digital marketing, how it applies to that as well. Um, so a wide range of topics is basically evolutionary psychology, the operating system for all human beings. If you want to understand this, you have to retrace the arc of evolution and what we picked up at various points along the way. But I'm talking about something larger. So I guess in this case, it would be my need to teach, my need to speak, my need to be an evangelist is my personality type. Even almost like a topic is unimportant. We can talk about martial arts. We can talk about evolutionary psychology. We can talk about business. It's all good. Uh, but knowing what your basic uh, orientation is, what your kind of ego or personality structure is, I think that's important. So like I've had a friend recently who wants to switch careers and he said, well, how do I even think about that? Like, what, what should I be doing instead? And I said, well, just ask yourself a series of questions. So really simple gut react stuff. Like, do you want to be inside or outside? Do you want a lot of structure in your day and predictability? Or do you want every day to be unique? Uh, do you want to be in this, a solo contributor or part of a team or leading the team, right? Um, do you want to be in a small environment like this, uh, or a large organization? Uh, and, and you know, if you just answer any one of those, you probably have a pretty clear affinity for one of the answers. And so any opportunity that comes up, you go, okay, how does that match up to, to my basic nature? I mean, I think you know, a lot of us piss into the wind and we do what consensus reality or our culture tells us we should be doing, but it's against our nature. And that is like revving the engine with the parking brake on. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I'm thinking to myself, like you are one of the founding fathers of conversion rate optimizations. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is something that you felt was fulfilling or was that like being identifying stuff that you're good at and having it pay off, but still feeling a little empty inside because it's really interesting. Typically the people at the top 1% of what they're doing, I, I was always under the assumption also based on our conversations here that you become in the top 1% among other things by really loving what you do and finding that fulfillment. Would you say that that wasn't the case for you? No, I'd say it was. I was just following um, threads and things that were working for me. A lot of this is is happenstance and and luck, and there's a thousand little pivots along the way. Like all these business books, like um, Warren Buffett or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, is like there's this inevitability when you read about their successes in the book. What you don't hear about are the thousand little meetings they didn't have, the person they didn't talk to, the the mistiming of the market by three months that resulted in a failure, quote unquote. All you know, so they say so you just keep trying. Certainly a lot of entrepreneurship or peak performance is about disciplines and persistence and showing up. Okay. But there's also this this um, serendipity and luck factor that I think people are just in denial about. We like to think we're in charge of things and it's it's really not true. So, but get, to get back to your question, in my case, I would say I was always interested in the human brain and understanding people and uh, how we make decisions. My PhD work at UC San Diego was in neural networks and artificial intelligence. 
Um, I also, one of my undergraduate majors with cognitive science. So I've always been interested in how people think and applying that to marketing and running my agency for about 25 years. I mean, we created 1.2 billion in value, documented value for the Nestle's, Expedia's and Google's of the world. So it works, right? The focus of that was evolutionary psychology and what I guess you'd call neuromarketing, the unconscious and real reasons we all make decisions. So it was both a passion and I could make a living at it and a pretty good one. Um, but ultimately, again, that, that thing of, of meaning and purpose, what I got to is really we can talk about marketing being important, but is it really? No, we're just taking money from one company's bank account and putting it in another company's bank account. We're not curing cancer here, okay? And, yeah, Uber disrupt this or that is just another way to call a freaking taxi, okay? So <laughs> let, let's not kid ourselves about the importance of disruptive businesses or iPhones or Uber or anything else. And so ultimately, that's not where you're going to get your meaning from changing the world in that way of making things slightly more efficient so we can all run faster on the gerbil wheel. Um, but yeah, I did enjoy the work itself and I enjoy picking apart problems, finding, uh, advocating for the user's perspective, which was usually ignored inside of companies in my experience and making things better that way. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Knowing what you know, uh, know about like how the brain works and the evolutionary, you know, like you can ad adapt those and have that journey, user journey to solve bigger issues. Like That's true. It could be used to help people save for retirement. It could be used to have people exercise more. I mean, all of that behavioral economic stuff is being applied to a lot of useful things as well, not just making money and marketing, to be clear. Uh, absolutely. And then there's like example, like Peter Diamandis with the X Prize and, you know, trying to invest in and drive people towards doing things that make a dent in the universe. Uh, but I guess what you're saying is that at the end of the day, you felt that you were doing wasn't achieving that. Yeah, well, I think it's it's an inward journey. So again, all this heroic making a dent in the universe, there was a um, Robert Sapolsky wrote this. Uh, he's a primatologist and he says some very interesting things about what makes us uniquely human. And one of the things he says that it's not language, it's not using tools, other animals do that too. Um, but it's actually one of the things that makes us human is the ability to hold contradiction. And he gave a specific example, which is that on the time scale of the universe, you know, your life blinks into existence. It's gone the next, right? Nothing matters. All these things we're passionate about, all these people we love, all these great causes, all this changing the world crap in the end result doesn't matter. It doesn't. Okay. And at the same time, knowing that, we need to have meaning in our life and we need to have it matter. And we'll, we'll, that's the very fuel of life is that curiosity, that drive, finding some kind of meaning in the lack of meaning. No, so, so knowing both, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the knife edge. That's the, the balance point. That's what makes us uniquely human. I just reread Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning and yeah, it kind of touches on a lot of the same things. That means actually this is the conclusion is, you know, present, present is the fact factor for, you know, if you're looking for a mission, you're just like, out of all what you said at the end of the day, the, the, if you hug that experience, then you're looking at how to not dent or impact. It's just making the most of, of now, 
like as a conclusion. Yeah, yeah. So it's not changing the world. Like, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I see way too many memes in my LinkedIn feed. It's like, how to be a servant leader and all this stuff. Have you seen that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Well, it presupposes everyone should be a surface leader. And most people aren't leaders or there'd be no followers, right? Uh, it's just, it's this ridiculous buy-ins that we have into stuff. So I'm saying, you know, don't lead the charge. Don't be the Pied Piper leading all the, all the people. Your your meaning might come from very different things. And I agree with Viktor Frankl that meaning is a is a, a personal thing that you can't be reduced to any. So if you want to act in the world, there's three things to do. You can act literally, like you can go do things. You can be, you can experience beauty and um, connection and all those things. So basically the, the lover and the warrior side. And then meaning again is that king archetype or the queen archetype, which is what, what's purpose? What do you have to live for? Um, and, and a lot of people just do one or the other of the, the lover or the warrior because they have no meaning. And it's very hard in our society to establish it because we're just bombarded with all kinds of stuff that's we're supposed to have meaning from and, and none of it sticks. This is so interesting and it like touches so many points because you know this podcast we're really trying to tap into our internal superpowers and encourage people to, to identify what theirs are and we really try to figure out what self-fulfillment means and how to achieve it and you know even preparing for this interview and reading you, what describes you and, you know, all these descriptions of, um, you know, title ranked uh, number X by Forbes magazine as a top marketer and by entrepreneur magazine and one of the founding fathers of CRO. And I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm wondering how much of that do you even feel defines you? Because it seems to me like we're tapping into something deeper here and maybe, you know, that description doesn't even, resonate. Yeah, th th I think that's true that things I used to care about or labels a CEO of a company, you know, um, keynote speaker on stages and as large as 12,000 people or, you know, athlete of the month at UCSD when I was doing my saber fencing, all of those things mean less and less to me. All, in fact, the, the attachment to labels in general means less and less to me, because it's not the it's not those external validations. It's it's like, how deep can I go? I mean, I don't need to bungee jump. I don't need to jump out of airplanes. To me, the, 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 the real stunt work or depth or risk taking now is in the, how vulnerable can I be? How open can I be with another human being? Um, that's, that's, that's kind of my guidepost now. So it, it's not anything achievable. It's not something I can claim to be number one in. It's just, it's a, it's a very personal thing and it's an inward directed thing. It's sometimes like if you are a medical doctor and you now choose to do acupuncture, then society will probably, uh, appreciate you more than if you just go right down the acupuncture path. So do you maybe feel like you've already got your um, accomplishments and, and you can click, you know, you can tick that off the list and you're now free to truly go down a spiritual path and explore your true self? Or is that something that in retrospect you could have done without the, the validation from society that you're, you're top 1% in several very appreciated fields? Well, 
That's a that's a great question, and I think that uh, I don't know if you've read Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements, uh, but yeah, and he talks about uh, at the beginning of that book about essentially you're we're very cultural creatures. Again, something I spent a couple of chapters of my book talking about. Uh, we absorb all of the values of the tribe around us to help us survive as a tribe all of that that cultural package and so we have this sort of consensus reality i call it of what we value in this society it's money it's outward success it's being attractive physically whatever those uh, kind of hyper capitalist values are right um and the basically like i said we spend half of our life trying to reach that mountaintop and then we get there and it's not that satisfying and then i so i think yeah you in a way you have to pay your dues it's not that it's checking off those boxes but you have to pay the price for those experiences maybe is a better way to put it there's a great um the interesting uh, guy, David Brooks, he writes a column for the New York Times. He's one of their kind of more conservative column, opinion columnists, but he's written several books, and one of them is called The Second Mountain, and I highly recommend it. It's a little more you know, on the religious bent because that's how he is in terms of expressing it. But the idea is the same, that you know, you climb that first mountain, which is the culturally expected stuff, and you get to the top and you look around and you go, hey, this isn't working for me. And then you consciously choose the second mountain that you're going to climb. And that's a much more personal thing. It usually involves cooperation or society or others. He calls these a lot of these people the weavers, you know, that so I guess in a stewardship and service role is a, probably a good way to describe it. And that's where a lot of people, you know, that's the second mountain that you consciously try to climb instead of being kind of brainwashed since birth by your surrounding environment. So can the first mountain truly be skipped? No. That's why they call it a midlife crisis, right? Now, some people's response to that is, again, get the Ferrari and wife 2.0. I mean, that's that's the obvious one. But in a way, they're just staying on the first mountain and just trying to climb a little higher on it and just reset it, you know. But uh, those, And I think a lot of people, and again, I'm not like some spiritual awakened guru, trust me. I am not, but um, most people just are pretty happy sleepwalking and it's just like this mild existential pain in life. And it's just like, okay, I'll shove that down and you know, distract myself or act like a victim or get triggered by stuff. And, you know, but I'm doing okay. Um, so most people are just kind of asleep and don't, aren't willing to do the, the courageous uh, work of looking inward. For 100%, I think you're right. That is the logical way to think. I'm thinking how it contradicts leading people because the problem is there is there is what's called, you know, the the um, illusion of control, okay? Or the, the the you know, you're you're on the second mountain, right? But as an entrepreneur, you have to lead people who aren't in the first mountain, right? So you know all that you know. And as usual, it's always an advantage to be dumber and we can't be dumber. And you have to lead by, you know, selling this illusion because they won't understand what you're saying. I, and my analogy for that is, you know, your dad uh, saying, listen, stretch after sports. But when you're young, you're like, I don't need that. And, and, and the thing is, you're, you're just annoying as a leader. You may be right, but it, it won't help you make your life easier, which, which is the problem with the vulnerability because you're trying to be vulnerable But the thing is, other people aren't, and you're usually leading those people on the first hill. And right? that's assuming you're not leading them um, within the first mountain in the first place, because what are you leading them towards? They won't come with you. They're not in the second mountain, right? You can't bring everybody in the same 
you know, it's, it, it's like you can't bring the exact same Maslow strategy where you're, you know, empowered and have enough confidence and done it. And you're, you're, you think the next, the, the next hill is going to be where I'm going to be happy. So the, the, the question actually is it, it, you're still leading as, as, as an academic, as a writer, as, you know, as, as professionally. And like, how do you lead with, with that illusion, you know, that you're trying, they're looking for something else. Ooh, uh, wow. We're, we're really going down the rabbit hole. Um, uh, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I think that my answer is, um, I don't know if you read Voltaire's book, Candide. It, it's a short book, but he the, the, the title character Candide goes through all kinds of trials in the world and says from, you know, like violence, rape, love, you know, like all these things. And the, like the final lines of the book, and I'm going to paraphrase is something, uh, like this. Uh, and so I will cultivate my garden, you know, so think global act local, maybe is the, you know, like the, this currently socially acceptable way of saying that, but uh, in a way you just have to understand uh, my belief. And I, and I feel this intensely is that everything in the world is connected where uh, my life is just a small manifestation. That's it's like throwing up a wave on the top of the ocean saying, look, the wave separate from the ocean. I mean, it's patently ridiculous, right? So I just look at it as if everything is connected, there's an American Indian term called, uh, that they say during their prayers, mitakuye um, oyasin, which means for all of my relations. And it's honoring this extended web of life and that everything in the most distant corners of the universe is impacted by anything we do, right? So it's our responsibility to just fix ourselves. Okay, so, so. Um, like uh, I think Mother Teresa says, you know, people will knock you down. You should get up anyway. You, you know, you, you, things won't matter. Do them anyway. You know, it's it's kind of that. It's like uh, the world's always going to be imperfect. So in the in the Jewish tradition, you know, tikkun olam, the the kind of rebuilding of the world out of the broken shards of it. You know, so unity cascaded down to the grossest physical level. And it's just our collective work to put those pieces back together and find our way back to, to unity, right? It just never stops. You're never going to be done either. So, but I mean, that, that's, that's where meaning and purpose comes in. It's just do it anyway. Like what's a say 20 year old supposed to do? Ah, that's not for you yet. This is Joseph Campbell. He was a, he was a beautiful you know, writer, academic. He talked about, the uh, yeah, yeah, the, the hero's journey. He popularized that idea that the thousand masks of God, all of that. But, you know, one time he had a, a uh, somebody come to him in one of his lectures at Sarah Lawrence College, where he, where he taught, and ask him this question about, like, this, you know, purpose, meaning, later in life stuff. And she was 20 years old, like he said. And he said, that's not for you yet. Yeah, definitely. Like I would see my 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 twenty year old uh, would would argue the heck out of this, and where where I'm concurring totally. Like I, I get I get that. That's that's the that's the irony of 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 life, right? Life is you know, they say life is wasted on the youth. You know, it's like if you knew now what you knew then, you'd do things very differently. But that's it. We just get get the one time around, right? And and we all, so compensations for the loss of our health, of our vitality, of our body, of um, all of that. You know, you get some wisdom along the way, and hopefully, you make good use of it and 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 enjoy that that last long drink. Yeah, but like, 
obviously not everybody arrives to these epiphanies and people, I don't know what percentage, but a lot of people probably say in the first mountain. And then there's those people who are frustrated because they, they want to progress to the next mountain, but they're either sort of um, stuck in the sense of, you know, life and obligations, or they... Pivot. Simply, yeah, no, they want it. They want to pivot, but they simply sometimes maybe don't know how. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, there's got to be some... Because otherwise it sounds like really religious and, and, and I am saying it in a bad way. I'm saying it in the sense that it, it doesn't make sense that there's no common ground and way to communicate to a person who has the intention but doesn't know the how. Yeah. Well, well okay. So, so let me switch to something else. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, this universal symbol called the Enneagram um, or if any of your guests have brought it up. But uh, most people would reduce it to saying it's a personality typing system like Myers-Briggs or DISC or Ocean or any one of these personality types. But it's a much more fundamental thing that comes back to uh, much older spiritual traditions. But it essentially says that we all kind of fall out of the Garden of Eden, the separation from unity. We're, we're in the womb. Everything's okay. We don't even know any senses, but like all's good. And then at some point, it's not good. And, and we have to figure it out. And as a result of our early holding environment and genes and predispositions, we essentially take on a certain type of ego structure. And the, in the Enneagram, these are numbered one through nine, and you just kind of have a compensation for your separation from, from source, okay? And what's interesting about it is that if you use it as a path for spiritual growth, that framework, um, there's a prescriptive aspect to it saying, if you have this type of ego structure and this view of the world, this is the way back. This is the path you have to take. The problem, as you mentioned with major religions, is that each one of them had a founder. Each one of them had people that spread it. And it was based on their predispositions. So somebody might say, well, you need to live the life of a renunciant and you need to sleep on beds of nails and wear a hair shirt. Okay, others will say, no, you just need to sit there and contemplate your navel and meditate and do nothing out in the world. Others say, no, service is love and action, and you have to go do, you know, uh, good deeds. And, and, and that's that. And they're each right for themselves. But the problem is the founder of each order or religion was doing that based on their ego structure and their personality. So um, I guess at the psychological level, you could say, psychologists are there to make you feel better about your existing ego structure, uh, whereas religious people want you to break through it and, and um, kind of make it not have its hold on you, right? But then the problem with religion is it's most of them are presented as a one size fits all, which doesn't take the personality into account. So anyway, I found the, the um, Enneagram to be a very powerful hybrid of the two that I've gotten a lot of value out of lately. Interesting. We definitely have to read up about it. That's the thing maybe into in a whole. The problem is the amount of options because the problem today is, is not that maybe people don't want to believe in something. They just have too many options in what to believe and they're looking for their fit. Life. Yeah, and, and you can spend your whole life window shopping exactly. and never go I'm not committing, store. so maybe it'll fit, but you know, you didn't spend enough time, or maybe the person who sold you the the fit was wasn't the right salesperson for you. You know, like there's so many intangibles. Yeah, exactly right. It sort of seems to me like 
if everybody were sharing this mindset at an early stage of their lives, like there would be zero innovation and progress in humanity in, in specific aspects, because I feel like people would be looking internally and sort of just being very humble and not even aspiring to do things that, um, that would be innovative. Do you, does that make sense to you? It, it, well, it, yes and no. So if I take your logical meaning of like improving the outside world and that sort of innovation, then I'd say again, where everybody wants our standard of living, everybody wants what happened after the enlightenment, and we're just about to overrun the planet like a plague of locusts and, and, and uh, kill ourselves off, whether it's through climate change or you know, a nuclear war, we could easily take a couple of billion people off this planet, right? Actually, I would say, arguably, the world would be better for it. So I'm not sure what all this innovation does. Great, we have indoor plumbing, and we don't suffer from dysentery anymore, not least in the developed world. But um, the existential meaning and struggles of human beings hasn't changed. And there were a lot of people that spent a lot of time innovating in that inner path. Tibetan Buddhists or Hindus or you know any number of people, uh, you know yogis, martial arts teachers. I mean, these are you know, very long, usually guru-led uh, or continuous human transmission kind of traditions that that were innovating a lot and continue to innovate. And if you look for that, the traditions are still there if you can find uh, them. So that's a kind of innovation that, again, I personally value more. Um, I, so I, I understand, and I actually wasn't asking from uh, a judgmental angle, but more like observing and, and thinking that it, it appears that if everybody shared that mindset, then innovation as we know it today would probably seem and be very different. Yeah, yeah. But well, so, Mike, well, I am judging, and I'm saying, why do you bring it up, even in terms of using the word innovation, which are arguably what I heard behind your words is that's a positive innovation in a collective sense. Is that important at all? It's like the the innovation of Burning Man, um, uh, as opposed to innovation as technology or you know what kind of impact uh, it is socially. You can actually say that maybe the connection between them is is going to Mars. So I don't know if you've seen this uh, uh, Don't Look Up movie recently. You know, yeah. but it's like, okay, great. Elon Musk and a few people get off the planet ultimately while the rest of it burns. Fuck that. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not interested. Right. Uh, so there's nothing noble about taking our kind of DNA to another planet. Wow. You know, so again, what's the, what's the meaning in that? It's just, it's just, you know, my penis is bigger than your penis and his rockets are literally shaped like penises. So, so I guess innovation as a concept um, doesn't have much currency for me. I would say that, um, you know, if innovation is some kind of Star Trek, egalitarian, sustainable utopia, that's pretty closer for me. You know, if we're wearing around on electric, um, cars and um, the planet's sustainable and we're happy in our lives. I mean, there was a, just an article in the New York Times today talked about you know, characteristics in the U.S. of the richest one-tenth of one percent and as well as what makes you happy. And okay, here's the big surprise. Here's the, what makes you happy is 75 plus uh, Fahrenheit degree days. That's about what, 23, 24 Celsius, uh, sunny, um, having sex, being in nature, 
being near a body of water, well, preferably all of those at once, have sex on the beach, um, you know, on a sunny day. That's happiness. That's what gives you the most happiness, uh, way more than money, way more than, um, you know, even being married or, you know, social connections, which are super important too. But I'm just saying, we know what makes us happy. It's being natural human beings in a state of safety and, and satisfaction and rest. It's not being um, kind of made to feel unhappy or less than so that we strive to overcome that by being consumers. And then that requires growth and innovation. That's fair. And like, where do you feel you are on your, can I call it a spiritual journey? It's on and off. The way I describe it is I fall asleep. And then once in a while, I wake up when, when somebody jams me in the ribs, you know, um, so where am I? Um, it's, it's always early. It's always, it's always, fuck, I should have started it earlier. And it's always, it's not too late to keep going now. I mean, that's, uh, we have our finite little lives and um, just keep plugging along. That's where I am. I have no idea because I don't have a goal. Wow, I, don't have any, I don't have a fixed goal. So, What's your superpower? Hmm. I think it's um, sharing what I know, learn and, and know passionately with others. Yeah, you wouldn't say, I, I'd actually say like consciousness. Like, well, that's a recent development, but I've always had. I know, but it's a different superpower. Like, <laughs> it's a feature. When, when Noah said it's brave to, to, to say, like, I have no goal, I'm saying, oh my God, I, I'd actually wish to not have a goal because that's definitely, you know, a really better way to achieve, uh, I'll say, freedom, okay, so of, of, you know, uh, uh, happiness for the like, success for me is freedom, right? In a sense, like emotionally and it, uh, and everything that has to do with it. And, and that's, that's being, you know, uh, you have a better percentile of being happier and achieving those goals of not having your goals. So I think well, that's well, you know, when my dad died uh, also when I was fairly young, I was 25 and I did a lot of spiritual work then just reread just about every framework from, you know, the Torah to the Upanishads to Black Elk Speaks, which is American Indian wisdom, you know, just the Tao Te Ching, you name it. I, I kind of digested it conceptually as books, right? Not lived it. But the one thing it did give me was a certain comfort in that these might be different approaches to climbing the, the mountain of life. Um, you're on different shoulders of that mountain, depending on where you start. Uh, but the, the path is kind of the same. And it, it all comes back to uh, go back to what you said earlier about martial arts, about presence, that being in the moment and doing that organically instead of like just jumping around in our thoughts to conceptual things, just to be fully present, then your response to the moment is going to be as powerful as it can be. And if you do that more of your day and more, and you do that more days of your life, then that's a better life. So that's kind of my, my ultimate, I think. And what would be your weakness? Um, yeah, so that's my shadow mission. I'll read it again. I create a world of disconnection, loneliness, and pain by chasing distractions, acting like a victim, and indulging in self-righteous anger. How much of your being, I will say in a meta sense, is now geared towards your weakness and your shadow personality? Well, so I use those as an orientation, right? So if I say, okay, this is the goal I'm trying to achieve, which is my positive mission, right? That's a single point, right? 
So you can draw infinitely many lines through a single point. So having the shadow mission anchors it. Now there's one straight line. So I'm going towards this and away from that. Not that I'm ever going to get fully towards the one or away from the other, but it's being consciously aware that that's the directional vector. Tim, thank you so much for doing this. You're leaving us with a lot of food for thought. Oh, it's it's been my absolute honor and pleasure. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can find me at timash.com. That's my speaking and marketing advisory consulting. Or if you want to find out more about my latest book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, Demystifying How We Think and How We Act, go to primalbrain.com. And by the way, I, I like really appreciate it. I know our listeners too, like there's something about the... The brutal honesty of of, of 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 it all makes it really clear. And like there's we're missing a lot of people that you know, you know, it's not a belief, it's just you know, giving it plain plain so people can actually attack it and, and try to understand it for themselves. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners will too. Yeah, there's uh, again just a parting thought. We're all in this boat together, as I like to say. Uh, the house rules are no one gets out alive. And so if the more you live in that uh, realization, the better off we all will be. Thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with both of you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.